All right, hey, welcome to Legacy. I know y'all hear me say that often. Today I'm not giving you the announcements. I'm here to announce God's Word as we've been going through the Apostles' Creed. If you don't know me, my name is Chaz Almond. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to be with you as we go through this very old creed. So if you've been following along, we're picking back up that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Before we started this morning, I was talking with Charlie here up on stage, and we were talking about just the vitality, the theological depth, the richness that this creed allows us to view God's Word, how it points us to God's Word, how the Apostles' Creed is, the, is a distilled text from and derived from God's Word. One of my favorite theologians of the modern era, he's dead now, he actually died in 2020, J.I. Packer, he says this about the Apostles' Creed. He says that it is the PowerPoint declaration of the basics of the Christian message. It's not as if the creed says this is everything you ever need to know in your walk with Christ. But it does say this is the minimum you need to affirm to walk with Christ at all. Now that is a pretty bold statement. And so here at Legacy, as a church, we are affirming the Apostles' Creed that we stand, that we stand by at another guy, the president of uh, Southeastern Theological Seminary, one of my other favorite people to refer to as, uh, as a theologian, Albert Muller puts it like this. He says it differently. All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. So you see, the creed, while it's not God's word, it is derived from it, and in no way, though, does it replace the Bible. And so as we go through the creed this morning, as he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, we're going to refer to the text where we get this from. But I caught myself thinking as I'm preparing for uh, this morning and as I lead a Bible study on Friday mornings with kind of a mixed bag of people who are hearing Jesus for the very first time. We're going through the book of John, and we're going through it verse by verse. And there are moments in the Bible that are just absolutely incredible. So incredible, they're kind of hard to believe, right? So incredible that without God's grace for you to believe them, they are quite unbelievable. And even in this creed that we've been going through for the past several weeks, that we've talked about a God who ascends from heaven. We've talked about a virgin birth. We've talked about a triune God, the Trinity, and how there are three persons in one, and how they are perfectly succinct, a resurrection from the dead. And today, this morning, that there is a resurrected Jesus who ascends and is now seated at the right hand of God. It's unbelievably good news. Yet without the grace to believe and see it, many people in the world deem it to be Untrue, And it's why I say often to people that are trying to see who Jesus is, as, well, as I share the gospel with them, I understand, I understand why they turn and they can't possibly comprehend all of who God is. It's a grace. It's a grace, church, and it's, and it's good. And I find the ascension to be one of those central truths about the gospel story that's easy to miss and really isn't taught on often. I mean, if you punch in Google sermons on the ascension, you're not going to find 
a whole lot of, of material. You might find some verses, you might find some articles, but it's not something that we typically highlight. And we as Christians often look to the past of what Christ has done in the atonement, his redemptive work on the cross. And then we look to the future that one, way, one day we will be glorified and we will be with Jesus eternally in heaven. But the in-between, we have a hard time understanding how the ascension matters today as we are to be living in the shadow of the second coming. So we stop usually at, at the story of, of the resurrection and then we kind of fast forward to Jesus is going to come and judge the, the living and the dead. And he will. And it's true that Jesus does finish the work, redemptive work, at the atonement, but it's really only the beginning of the story because we have a lot of time, potentially, right before Jesus comes back, right now as we meet, as we evangelize, as we share, as we pray together, as we do community together, as we do church together in our homes, as we do it here if we stop the gospel story at the resurrection, then we end up with an incomplete gospel. Here's why. Because there is no returning Jesus then to judge the living and the dead. And if there's no ascension, then there's a body somewhere that's yet to be discovered and totally dismantles Christianity. Jesus has to ascend. There has to be an exalted Jesus. And the good news is, because of the ascension, We have currently, right now, a great high priest who sits in heaven as your intercessor, as your mediator, as your advocate at the right hand of God. So if we miss the ascension, then we will totally misunderstand Jesus' present ministry for us as we meet here as a people, as we live within that shadow of the second coming. If I don't comprehend the significance of Jesus' ascension then as, as intercessor and mediator, then what I begin to forget is that my sin is forgiven. We become a people who can't quite comprehend that even now as we live and breathe that we have an advocate for my sin. And if I miss the eternal significance of being able to approach God's throne with boldness, and with courage that God delights in me, then I am ultimately going to be somebody that is going to be unfaithful and unfruitful because I'm not believing the gospel. I'm not believing that I have, my sin has been atoned for. So why so little sermons on the ascension? Well, I think we don't, as a church, have a holiday for it that we necessarily observe. We have the incarnation, we have Christmas, we have, the, we have Good Friday, we have Easter, and there is something called an Ascension Day, but it's not something that we celebrate as a people. So what does it have to do with our discipleship? What is its eternal significance for us, its permanence? And I think the best place for us to turn on the event of the Ascension itself in Scripture is in Acts 1. The story of the ascension, it's Luke's a second work. And if you have your Bible, um, feel free to turn there with me. It will also be up on the screen. And we're going to pick up in verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know 
times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power, listen up now, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were look, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, these are angels, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, they saw something extraordinary. Jesus was just taken up after giving the Great Commission. And recently, uh, so my, my oldest child just started kindergarten, and my wife was so brave to take all three of my children into the shoe store. And uh, as they are going wild and running around, and it's time for them to leave, Brianna tells Josie, who she's the one that gets lost in a store and doesn't really mind where you are, Josie, it's, it's time to go. Josie, it's, it's time to go. And Josie, for the first time in her life, saw something that she had never seen before. She's four years old, so it happens a lot, okay? But if you remember a display case, all right, rotating display case, they're kind of obsolete. You don't see them very often anymore unless you're in an old, old store. Maybe this was Shoe Carnival or something like that, right, a little bit of low-tier shoe store. And she sees something, not just the display case as it's perfectly lit, as there's mirrors all around it to display everything and hit all the perfect lighting positions. And if you remember, they are very slow. They are very slow. In the display case was every single thing that any four-year-old little girl would want. Everything licensed by Disney, of course. Bedazzled, bejeweled, sparkling, beautiful little handbags. Beautiful little purses, beautiful necklaces and bracelets of Josie's dreams. And she's standing there, and Brianna's speaking on deaf ears. Josie, let's go. And she, without breaking gaze, says, Mommy, I just can't. I just can't. I haven't seen it all yet. You know, it's only a, a quarter of the way around. She was stargazing. She was, she'd never seen it. It was amazing to her. It was amazing. And in the same way, the apostles, they'd never seen this before. They've seen Jesus heal the sick the lame, the blind. They've seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They've seen some extraordinary, amazing things. But here, they're caught stargazing. They're, star they're staring into heaven. It's so incredible that it takes an angelic declaration, these two men standing there, men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? And I find that to be an interesting question. We, it's not the first time we've seen Angels, we saw them to, to explain the incarnate Christ to the shepherds. We see uh, these two men at uh, the resurrection when the, at the tomb. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Interesting question, is it not? Well, here's what they're saying. In other words, until Christ comes again, you apostles, get on with the mission that Jesus just commissioned you with. It was their mandate. 
as he ascends into heaven, he gives the mandate. And it's how Matthew will end up ending his gospel with the Great Commission. And I'm not going to have a Great Commission sermon right now. But this is where, this is in conjunction with the ascension. It is the last words that Jesus says to his disciples as he goes up and is exalted and sits down. So, in other words, what they're saying is that don't be preoccupied with the sky. Go into the earth as the Holy Spirit empowers you to do what I have just told you to do. It was the earth that they were to be preoccupied with. They were called to be witnesses. So here's what John Stott has to say about this. This is the Jesus we believe in. He is both historical, the contemporary Jesus who lives, the Jesus of history began his work on earth, the Christ of glory has been active in spirit ever since, according to his promise to be with his people always to the very end of the age. Now listen, Jesus makes deliberate provision for his continuance, still on earth, through the apostles, okay? He began with the apostles, but now through you in heaven by way of his spirit as he sits down at God's right hand. The Holy Spirit is fulfilling this missional mandate that Jesus gives through you. Through the church, he leaves, but the mandate continues as he rules and reigns in highest authority at God's right hand. And it's awesome. Jesus miraculously comes. He miraculously leaves. And he's going to miraculously come again. And he floats off into heaven. The ascension. Jesus is received up by God. It is the exaltation of Jesus is what we call this. And we can conclude from this ascension that there was absolutely nothing left for Jesus to do and complete on earth. He ascends and he sits down. You don't sit down. You don't sit down after uh, when there's more work to do in regards to the atonement. He sits down, received. Christ's ascension is the seal of God's approval that the incarnate Christ, his humiliation, the taking on of human flesh, to be the God-man, all things that the Father sent him to do are completed. They're finished. The atoning work of Christ is done, and Luke beautifully spoke about that last week. So why does he leave? Why does Jesus leave? Why doesn't he just stick around? Why has he got to go sit down at God's right hand? Well, he says that it is to your advantage. It is to your advantage that he leaves. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems hard to believe that it is advantageous for the incarnate Jesus to not physically be dwelling among us. I mean, I think if you surveyed 150 people in the Knoxville area and you asked them, do you think that the world would be a better place if we had Jesus with us presently? I think they'd say, well, yeah, probably so, right? I think, I think the earth would be. What about, what about the church? We can ask and reframe that same question. Do we think that it's an advantage that Jesus is not presently, bodily here with us? Is it even okay to say, yes, it is, it is better. It is good. It is an advantage. Is that sin? No, it's not. Look, what, look at what Jesus has to say in John 16. 
Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the first thing that we see regarding the significance of the ascension is that by leaving, the Holy Spirit, the helper, as Jesus says, comes. And Jesus says, it is to your advantage. Why? Well, because the helper is coming to convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment geographically unbound. Because Jesus is now present, indwelling with every single believer, indwelling within us bodily. The Holy Spirit is within. Jesus became the God-man, the tabernacle, if you remember. It was the way to go in and enter into the presence of God. The tabernacle, Jesus Christ comes down. God comes down to be the tabernacle before the people. And Paul teaches us that we are united to Jesus, okay? By way of his spirit indwelling within us, we are united, and now we are the temple of the living God. Now, the beautiful thing is there's people meeting for church all over the place right now. The living tabernacle of the living, of, of the living God. So everywhere you go, You are a tabernacle for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus unites himself to you by way of the Holy Spirit and dwelling within the the Christian so that now everywhere you go, you are a trumpeteer. So now his missional mandate isn't just accomplished by the apostles. It's now present with us everywhere. People are coming to know Jesus everywhere, being represented. We are representing Jesus everywhere, displaying his righteousness ever present with us, walking tabernacles Christ leaves for our advantage in convicting the world so that everywhere you go, people see Christ. People see Christ. And the gospel spreads faster. We are actually closer to Jesus as the Spirit dwells within, as he unites himself to us. The gospel is not geographically confined. We are not meeting over in the Middle East. We are meeting in Knoxville, Tennessee, And there are people in China also meeting, and the Holy Spirit is doing work everywhere. It's why when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Helper comes, when you open your mouth about the things of God, it convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's why when you pray, things happen, because you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. When you share your faith with people, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Helper has come and lives and it dwells and is united with you to make God known among the nations. Things happen. But the second thing, the significant thing that we can see to conclude as to why Jesus leaves is because he says that he is going to prepare a place for us. He's leaving to prepare a place for us. In John 14, here's our accompanying text. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you knew the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is tattooed on a lot of people. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Think about that for a moment. Part of why Jesus leaves is because he's going to prepare a place, a heavenly dwelling, eternal dwelling of absolute rest in the presence of God forever for you. If you are a believer in the room today, he's going to prepare a place. And we feel it in worship. We feel it as we meet for community. We don't have the fullness of worship yet. We don't have the, we don't have the fullness of God yet. But one day, Jesus says very clearly that as Christ is, is glorified, we too will be also. We see shadows of that. But it's not here yet. It's not here yet. But with that is attached this promise that he will come again and he will take you himself. That through him is this eternal dwelling place. That through him you have a place in heaven, a sign to you that God has a place for you. How can we know the way to the Father's house? By way of Jesus, as he answers Thomas, who is your great high priest in heaven now. So we've talked about two things, okay? The ascension, the exaltation of Jesus means at least two things, as we've seen thus far. Without Jesus leaving, we would receive no spirit. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. Well, that's great news, okay? What about today? What does that have to do with as we live in the shadow of the second coming? I understand you have your own troubles. You have your own problems. You have sin that you're, you're battling. You have moments in your life where you feel discontentment. You feel distant from God. I talked to a guy, and, and this, is, this is real life, y'all. I mean, as you do ministry in your communities. I talked to a guy that, I mean, you know, some of this is recorded. I'm not going to use anybody's name, but you, the, the guy pays his house off, okay? And a week later, his mom says, I got stage four lung cancer. What does the ascension have? How does it speak into that today? We have real problems. We feel real pain. We're real people. We have emotions. I talked to somebody this week who one of their family members lost their child in the womb. How is the ascension good news today? I mean, I get it. There's a resurrection from the dead that, that, that Christ has atoned for us. And, and that I have a heavenly dwelling. But what about now? Today? Why does the ascension matter? And it's such good news for us today. It's such good news for us. And I love how the writer of Hebrews puts it. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So number three that we can see from the ascension is that 
Jesus, as he ascends and sits down at the right hand of God, is interceding for us in heaven as great high priest forever. That is good news. Because if you are a believer in this room, you have an advocate. You have a Jesus who is able to sympathize in every way, who feels what you have felt. And it's important for me to note here that the ascension and the reception of Jesus does confirm that Christ's redemptive work is complete. I'm saying that for a reason. The atonement is complete. However, okay, I know some of your antennas may have just went up. However, what Christ is not finished doing is advocating for his people. Okay, let me explain. Christ's atoning work is done. It's finished. It was a historical event once and for all. It's never going to happen again. It's final. It's unwavering. It is absolutely complete. Jesus, as our propitiation, means that that Jesus in his death on the cross turns away the wrath of God directed toward me and brings it and wears it upon himself. As Paul writes to the Galatians, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. My sinful record, it's, propitiation is a legal term. It's, a, it's transactional. Okay, when I become a Christian, my sinful record, my sin is exchanged with Jesus' perfect record. That he covers me. And so it's, a, it's an objective thing. Christ's death was historical. And in that one historical event, Christ dies for every single person that will ever come to know Jesus. You can't recreate the event. The atonement is final. Never to be added to, never to be taken away. Okay? So that when I... When I Look at Christ's advocating work in heaven for me. The work is not finished as far as Jesus' advocation. In fact, we'll talk about it more here in a second. Christ's advocating work for you is his primary work in heaven right now. And it's beautiful work. I'm going to bring Al Mohler back in here so you can have uh, him reiterate this in this way. It says, from his seat at the right hand, Christ continues his work as Redeemer. Too many Christians think Jesus has already done all that he's going to do for us. We look back to the cross and the resurrection and assume this is where the work ends. But two very important aspects of his works aren't finished. For starters, Christ didn't accomplish in his earthly ministry all the Messiah was foretold to accomplish. This did not make his mission a failure. Rather, Revelation tells us a spectacular fulfillment is coming. We're still waiting for Christ to vindicate his church and judge the nations. So this aspect of his work is yet to be finished. When we think of Christ as redeemer, we often refer to him as our intercessor. An intercessor is a mediator between two parties, all right? So, of course, Jesus is our intercessor, our mediator between God and man, but mediator can be a dangerous word because we think we know what it means. And in that context, it's flawed, okay? We assume it means that you're getting two opposite sides together. So think about maybe um, a, a labor union and, and a company of sorts. And they have some contention. They have a feud. And typically, for a mediator to resolve that issue, 
both parties end up conceding to something. They don't exactly get what they want. Neither one usually gets what they want, okay? And so a mediator comes in, and they're trying to resolve that issue, and they make concession, and then they resolve the problem. But here's the issue when we use the word mediator if we're not careful. It's not that, that there, there is no common ground between sinful man and holy God. There is no concessions for sin. There's no compromise when we use the word mediator, there's not a compromise between God and man because the only thing that would be compromised is the holiness of God himself. So it's not when we say mediator that God just overlooks our sin, that he just dismisses it, says it's okay. So what does Christ do? He agrees that your sin is ugly. He agrees that your sin is deserves wrath. He agrees that we must have eternal death to satisfy God's pending wrath toward us. But it's Christ who agrees to be that mediator, to be the sacrifice that quenches the eternal wrath directed toward you and toward me. He agrees with the Father to be sent for that very task, to become sin that we might be redeemed. Propitiation. We see that displayed through the atonement. It's what it means for us to have Jesus as our propitiation. And here's kind of where this gets real for us today in the context of seeing Jesus as great high priests. Because I think for us, sometimes it's hard to really believe actively as we live now. We can look back at the atonement and say, yes, my sin is forgiven. But in normal life, As we go throughout our days, do you really believe that your sin is forgiven? Do you feel that? Do you feel redeemed, ongoing forgiveness, day after day, moment by moment, that you, exactly how you are, looking at me, sitting in that chair, believe my sin is forgiven and God delights in me. He delights in me. That you can go before God the Father with confidence because you have a great high priest in heaven for you who has atoned once and for all and it's final, the atonement. If I had to guess, you've probably sinned today. <laughs> if, not, if not today, it's amazing. I'd like to know how you did that. But, but yesterday maybe and tomorrow likely the same thing. Maybe you got in an argument with your wife as you walked out of the door this morning to come to church. That happens, does it not? Maybe you got a little too temperamental with your children, lost your temper with them. Maybe you like to tell little lies about yourself, inflate yourself so that other people, you need other people to like you. Maybe it's to get ahead at work. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe it's a way that you you, you feel like you don't steward your finances in a way that honors God and the list goes on and on and on. Your comfort derived from other things. Yet despite your ongoing failure, <laughs> despite it, Jesus doesn't retract his promise that he's preparing a place for you. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. Maybe if I ask that question in another way and ask it like this, 
how do you really feel about Jesus' attitude toward you? How do you feel as God sees you now? How do you feel like he sees you? You know, because I think it's easy for us to say to each other that your sin is forgiven. As we meet for DNA, as we meet in each other's living rooms, we see each other, your sin's forgiven. And we believe that genuinely. But isn't it different? Isn't it different sometimes when we tell ourselves, and my sin is forgiven, and that Jesus is advocating for me right now, that nasty thing, my sinfulness, my sin is forgiven. It's much harder to believe, isn't it? Easier to say to somebody else, harder to tell ourselves, especially after a moment of deep failure, a season of just loss after loss after loss. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You feel hurt. Is there anybody who understands? There is. There is a high priest right now that doesn't accuse you before the Father. This is what 1 John says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Paul says it differently. Who is to condemn in Romans 8? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. I have an advocate, a high priest at God's right hand. See, Jesus doesn't make compromise for your sin. He doesn't make any compromise. God doesn't make compromise. He sheds his own blood. And it was a requirement. Penalty was due. And Jesus takes it. And when the Bible says that he is advocating for you, it doesn't just mean that Jesus is mediating between you and God. It says that It says very clearly, the advocation of Jesus, that he is directly next to you. He is unified with you as aligned with you, aligned with you as you approach the Father, so that you may come before the throne boldly, so that you may come before the throne with absolute confidence. Jesus' advocation is not something that we wait for. It happens in real time. It happens in in real time, so that when I sin, I'm not waiting to be redeemed. I have been redeemed, and therefore, I can approach the Father because Jesus advocates for you presently. And in fact, he is drawn to you there in your brokenness. He's drawn to you there. So, yes, Jesus is always mediating for you. I mean, I certainly cannot come to the Father without the intercession of Jesus But he specifically is advocating for you, aligning himself with you as you fall, as you stumble, that you may be redeemed and see God as he delights in you because of what he has done. Because he doesn't look at you, Jesus doesn't look at you and tell you how ugly you are as you feel ugly. He's not laughing at you. God's not laughing at you. I knew you'd do that again. I knew knew we couldn't trust you. I knew you would mess that up. They're not pointing at you and kicking you while you're down. That's not what's going on. Jesus is drawn to you there. He says, stand up and enter into my joy. Enter into boldness. And Jesus as your advocate. Here's how we know. Here's how we know 
Jesus advocates for me, that he feels what I feel. Because because of the cross, he felt your sorrow. He felt your shame. He felt your guilt. He felt your separation from God. He bore the fullness of God's wrath upon himself that you may be presented holy and blameless before God and walk into eternity with confidence. Knowing that the atonement is complete, knowing that I have an eternal dwelling, and now I have a high priest in heaven. He just bore all that junk with nails in his hands and, and feet. His was a lot harder. A lot harder. If anybody knows rejection, if anybody knows pain, if anybody knows injustice, it's Christ. It wasn't just rejected by his own during his earthly ministry, but on the cross, in his darkest hour, God turns his face away from him and rejects him for your ugliness, for your sin. He knows what it feels like, not because he sinned, but that he literally became sin. He wore it and felt it for you. He shares with you in that actual experience of pain, guilt, and shame and loss presently. It's not something we wait for. And he draws in close to you because it is his nature. And he speaks. (laughs) He speaks on your behalf. It's what it means for Jesus to be our high priest in heaven We need a priest. I don't need an earthly priest, but I need a Jesus who brings a new and better covenant as our final high priest. Not a priest who has to enter into the the tabernacle, who has to go and atone for sin himself, who has to sacrifice an animal for his own sin before he sacrifices pigeons and oxen and donkeys and things of that nature for the people's sin. A priesthood that's perfect because he, the Christ, is objectively perfect perfect. A priesthood that never ends, unlike the Levitical priesthood that we read in in Hebrews, where generation after generation, you had to raise up people and raise up priests who would die. They died. And then they still had to sacrifice animals over and over and over, a shadow of the priests that would come. A priesthood that never ends. A priesthood that never fails. A priest who in himself only can offer forgiveness of sin because it's his body broken and it was his blood shed. Only he can offer the gift of righteousness because it is his own righteousness to give so that you may come boldly before the throne. Now. Right now. Nobody reads that text in 1 John and thinks, I have an advocate so my sinfulness is irrelevant. Well, that's not true. You're missing it. When we read that Christ is our advocate to know that he presently aligns himself with me, it makes me not want to choose sin. It makes me not want to fall into sin. To think that in this moment my sin is covered, but presently I don't want to evoke his advocation for me. But yet at the same time to know that I have an advocate in heaven, I would have no hope if I didn't. I would have no hope before the Father. And so what it means for Jesus to be your advocate, to be your eternal high priest, it means that even in your worst moment, when you cannot believe 
that your sin is forgiven as a believer because of the ascension, because of the atonement. God is seated at, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, highly exalted. And he picks you up in your deepest moments of pain and sorrow and suffering when you feel like nobody else can possibly meet me here. Jesus comes alongside of you, wipes away your tears, picks you up off your knees, stands you up tall, and allows you to walk before God with confidence. That is good news. It's good news. And it means when he says that he's going to take us there into heaven, Jesus is going to take us there. It's because I get to walk into eternity because of what he's done. Because of his righteousness, <laughs> he's going to hold your hand and walk you in because it's his righteousness given to you. And the atonement is the fulfillment of that. So when I look and I think that I cannot approach the Father, too dirty, too sinful, I hurt too much, it's not true. In fact, it's where Jesus meets us. It's where Jesus meets us, and the ascension is affirmation that I have a great high priest, man, that never fails, never fails. The fact that God receives him up, it's verification that Christ's atoning work is finished. So then who can accuse? Who can accuse? It's good news. In church, for us, if you're a believer, here's what it allows us to do. It allows us to be honest about our sin. Does it not? Who can accuse? Who, who can throw stones at me? Nobody. Because Christ is my advocate. And because he's my advocate, I don't want to sin. Because of my standing with God, go and sin no more. I don't want to sin. It gives me courage to confess to people about what's really going on. About my sinfulness. It lets me walk deeply with people around me. Not within the church, but deeply engage culture. Because the power of the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within me. It allows us to confess pretty quickly, doesn't it? To know I'm already forgiven. I'm just telling you what God already knows. I'm just telling you what he already knows. To forgive quickly. Christ as your advocate does not condemn you. So you get to walk in freedom. Earlier when we first started, I said that if we fail to grasp the significance of the ascension, then we will be unfaithful and unfruitful as a people. It's, it's because if, if I'm a person that cannot grasp that they have an advocate for them in heaven, I'm not somebody that feels very empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't feel like I can approach God. I don't feel like I can come with boldness. I don't feel confident in what... Jesus has done for me. Somebody that doesn't feel as if they are forgiven probably isn't going to make a very good missionary, leaving us unfruitful. When I know I have an advocate at the ready, it makes me fight sin so much harder. As John wrote, so that you may not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate to see what depths Jesus goes to to be your advocate, to wear your sin, to be sin.
for you. And Jesus, as he ascends, reveals his master plan of evangelism, which is a great book. You will be my witnesses. He's telling the 12, the 11, you will be my witnesses. You, you will be my witnesses. The church, because of the spirit that brings power to the ends of the earth. If you're not a believer in this room, it's not very good news for you. If you're joining us online, the, the Christ is not your advocate. Because for Jesus to be your advocate, I have had to have repented and turned away from my sin. There is a whole wide world out there of people that have no idea no idea that you have a great high priest in heaven, that the atoning work is finished. And in fact, in Revelation, it says very clearly that Jesus is going to crush his enemies, like the wine press is going to crush his enemies. It's good news for the believer. Because I have an advocate, my sin has been covered. But if you do not know Jesus, you have no advocate before the Father. And far be it from us to think that we can approach God's throne without an intercessor. Your guilt still remains. Your sin is not covered. But here's where it's good news. That Jesus invites you to know him. He invites you to see him, to see the depths that he went to, that you may be forgiven and advocate for you before the Father. Every resource in the heavenly places belonging to the believer that we may make Christ known among the nations, that your neighbor may see Jesus clearly, that your mom can know the Lord, that those people you work with can see Jesus and know that their sin is forgiven. You have been empowered by way of the Spirit. I know you're flawed. I know you deal with sin. But the beauty of it is I can go share with that person knowing that I have an advocate. I feel forgiven. I feel forgiven. I don't have to walk in shame and guilt and in shambles. And I think, I think for us as we close, the best way that a person can fight sin is to understand they're, they're, they're forgiven, to understand that God had a cosmic plan. He's redeemed you if you're a believer in the room. He had a global vision. He had a big vision completed by the Son who gives you global vision. So have vision. Here in a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to think about, just think about the brokenness around you. I've had a lot of conversations this week and of just like people dying, man. And, and my my 
my direction I point them in is to know that, listen, if anybody understands your sorrow, if anybody understands what you feel, it's the, that there's a Jesus who is a dear and true friend who never fails, whose eternal priesthood will never end. And it's good news. It's good news for us today.